Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. Born in New York in 1941, John Chicky Donahue grew up in Inwood, Manhattan, which had at the time a large population of Irish Americans, spending his free time getting up to the kind of mischief young lads get up to with his close pals Tommy Collins and Rick Dugan. When he was old enough, he enlisted in the Marine Corps where he was given weapons training But despite America's growing involvement in the Vietnam War, he never saw combat, though he visited the country twice as a merchant seaman. Nonetheless, he felt invested in the well-being of those fighting. Donahue knew some 28 young men from his neighbourhood who had died in the conflict. Quote, They were like my kid brother's age, but I knew them. I grew up in the same houses. End quote. Upsetting as this was for Donahue, what incensed him were the anti-war protests. On a cold evening in November 1967, Donahue was at his local bar when news of anti-war protests in Central Park came on the television. Donahue said of the protesters, quote, They would carry a Viet Cong flag, they would chant murderers, baby killers, all this other stuff, end quote and Donahue wasn't impressed, nor was he the only one at the bar upset by the treatment of returned service personnel that night. Almost everyone in attendance had lost friends and family members, and bartender George Lynch had the idea that they should sneak into Vietnam, track down their friends and loved ones, with personal messages from those at home, and perhaps a beer or two. Now, I didn't investigate far enough to know if this was a serious suggestion at the time or a throwaway comment, but nonetheless, a plan was hatched and Donahue took up the gauntlet. And so, with a list of six names and a bag full of beers, he set off for Vietnam. Well, not quite that simple. They don't just let anyone into a war zone he first found a job on a ship that was taking ammunition to Vietnam, and after two months at sea, he arrived in 1968. Oddly enough, nobody questioned him as to what a civilian was doing there, even though, dressed in a plaid shirt and corduroy trousers, he stood out like a sore thumb. While he let the lower-ranking people know what he was doing there, and indeed received much help and appreciation from them, he was careful of what he said around officers, simply answering their curiosity with, quote, If I told you the truth, you wouldn't believe me. End quote. And Donahue observed something. Quote, the longer I was there, I became aware that they're deferring to me and didn't stop me, end quote. It seems his casual attire, combined with his cryptic answers, created the impression that he was an intelligence agent, and this would be most helpful. He was able to hitch rides in helicopters and other military vehicles, and was able to move around freely, without suspicion or hindrance. He found four of the six men he was tasked with tracking down, 
Of the other two, one had been sent home and the other, sadly, had been killed. Those he did find were surprised to see him, to say the least. They shared a beer and were updated on the news from home and were very appreciative of his efforts. He was involved in firefights during his mission and on one occasion was handed a grenade launcher. And there were other dangers too. When his mission was accomplished, he headed to Saigon to begin catching transports back home, but was caught up in the notorious Tet Offensive. Somehow, despite being an unarmed civilian, he survived and made it back home and to Doc Fiddler's, the bar where the idea had its genesis. But he'd come back a changed man. He now found himself siding with the anti-war protesters. Fortunately, the four men he'd sought out to have a beer with made it home alive, and they could reminisce about the most extraordinary beer run of all time. There are untold stories out there of unidentified flying objects, UFOs as they're known, or flying saucers, or whatever you prefer to call them. But most are unverifiable reports from lone witnesses or very small groups who, for one reason or another, were unable to gather any compelling evidence of their encounter, save occasionally for some grainy out-of-focus video footage or a blurry photograph. Despite the lack of evidence, these are interesting stories nonetheless, and I'm quite a fan of them, but when I devised the Extraordinarium, I decided that part of the criteria had to be not only that the stories be extraordinary in nature, but also factual. Thus, almost nothing involving UFOs, alien abductions, or the paranormal have made the cut. But what if there was a UFO sighting that took place over one of the world's most famous cities with multiple clear photographs and tens of thousands of eyewitnesses. In the city of London one morning in 1989, there was something unusual in the pre-dawn skies. Lights travelling steadily and deliberately across the city. As if attached to an airborne vehicle whose occupants were studying the ground, looking for a landing site. The lights were unusual in their configuration and had already commanded considerable attention from those among the city's residents who were awake at that hour. But soon a sense of awe would spread across the populace as dawn unveiled to them the source of the lights, a giant silver disc-shaped object. Traffic ground to a halt as the strange craft, with its lights blinking and strobing, made its way over the M25, with stunned commuters pulling over to take a decent look at the strange vehicle. But you didn't need to be out and about to know something strange was taking place above London. Breakfasting residents were informed in their homes as radio and television news services gave blow-by-blow -blow accounts of the whereabouts and movements of the machine. Even the police and army had been put on standby. Now, often stories like this end with the craft shooting off into the distance at unfathomable speed, never to be seen or heard of again. Not so this story. In this instance, the craft landed in a sports field, where it was surrounded by police. A lone officer 
truncheon in hand, moved cautiously toward the vehicle after it came to rest, but soon went darting back to his fellow officers as the door to the vehicle opened and a fog billowed out. From within, a creature emerged that bore a remarkable resemblance to the creature from the 1982 film E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And that's when the penny dropped. The astonishing resemblance to E.T. was because it was an E.T. costume, worn by a man. The fog billowing out of the craft was produced by dry ice, and throughout all of the awestruck speculation that had taken place, nobody had noticed the words Virgin Galactic Airways written boldly on the side of the flying saucer. Nor had anybody noted the date, the 1st of April. The craft was, in fact, a giant hot air balloon, designed and built by Virgin founder Richard Branson to look like what most people would think a UFO should look like, long before he began actual space flights. At first, the police were none too pleased and threatened arrest for wasting their time, but eventually saw the funny side of what might be the most extraordinary April Fool's Day prank ever executed. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.